I'm James Lawrenson, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI Podcast. Over the last couple of years, China's aid in the Pacific has come under increased scrutiny. Some commentators suggest that China's infrastructure projects and loans lead to unsustainable levels of debt for countries in the region, and that aid programs could be used by China to promote pro-China policy positions. In January, Australia's International Development Minister, Conchetta Ferraventi-Wells, said that China is building white elephants and roads to nowhere. For its part, the Chinese government has recently announced the formation of the International Development Cooperation Agency to coordinate its foreign aid programs, indicating that the government may be prioritising the improvement of its international aid policy in light of its Belt and Road Initiative. So, what is China's approach to aid? Should Australia be concerned? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Dr. Meriden Varel, Director of the East Asia Program at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. Meriden was previously the Assistant Country Director and Senior Policy Advisor at the UNDP China, where she worked on China's role in the world, focusing on its international development cooperation policy. Meriden, welcome to the ACRI podcast. Thanks, James. Great to be here. And I should add for our listeners, last night I was just listening to you, Meriden, as the acting Australian ambassador to China. Pretending acting Australian ambassador to China, okay? There has not been an amazing cabinet reshuffle. So Meriden was on an ABC um, program called It's Not a Drill, and I'm certainly uh, discussing um, a, a hypothetical scenario unfolding in the South China Sea, and I'd certainly encourage ACRI's podcast listeners to check that out. Back to foreign aid. So Meriden... The first question I'd like to start off with, and it's a bit, it's a, bit a big picture one, a scene setter. Um, how do Australian and Chinese approaches to aid differ? Can you nail down some key points in how they differ in, in their approach? And look, are there ways in which they're common as well? Sure, sure. So if you look at the, let's look at theory and practice maybe. So in terms of the theory, the ideas behind aid, Australia is very much a member of the OECD DAC uh, traditional donor group. So they uh, really believe in the kind of a marcha sen model of development as freedom, uh, that the idea of governance and democracy mean that aid and development are going to be sustainable and effective. They're the kind of values that Australian right. aid is, is built on. Now, uh, China, on the other hand, is more of a kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of model. So if you imagine a triangle, the bo- the base of that triangle is is material. It's a bit Marxist as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, what kind of infrastructure have you got? Food to eat and, and the ideas of sort of democracy, government, that kind of stuff, they're way up the top. Tiny right. little part of the triangle. So development and aid go uh, are about that bottom level, building the infrastructure that material needs need to be met. That's what really good development looks like from a Chinese point of view. Right, and that view about aid is informed by their own approach to development so. internally. Yeah. Would that be right? Yeah, I'd say that's a reasonable um, assumption. Um, there is genuinely a Marxist idea of you know the material substructure coming first, but yeah, that's how they achieved what they've got today. And yes. there is a Chinese saying that you know if you want to if you want to get rich, build a road. Yeah, and that's that's not just light rhetoric. So, in practice, what that means is that. Well, Chinese aid is going up. That's one thing that we can see. That's a trend. It's hard to tell exactly how much, but China is really investing more in its aid and in those infrastructure projects. And at the same time, Australia's aid is going down. Right. We've hit, we hit a peak in about 2012, 2013. We never hit the 0.7% that OECD DAC donors are aiming for. Mm-hmm. We've always been pretty below standard. And 
is China is also increasing um, funding to multilateral aid organisations, so bi- bilateral and multilateral. Australia is going down at the same time. Um, and China spends that money on these kinds of physical infrastructure projects, um, bridges, roads, buildings, these kinds of things that it believes right. are investments for development. Right. You mentioned um, it does it on a bilateral and multilateral basis. Can you give some examples of the multilateral cooperation? Because I guess in Australia we probably hear more about Chinese bilateral aid in the South Pacific. Are there any examples that come to your mind about whether China's working in in partnership with several countries? Well, okay, so that's... There's there's multilateral and there's trilateral, which are a bit different. Multilateral, um, you know, that's where a country gives funds to an organisation and it has no real say in how those funds are used. So, say, for example, the United Nations Development Program. China donates money to that, do what you want, we trust you. Um, So China is is a big believer in those kind of multilateral aid uh, organisations and donates generously to them. Right. So when you were in China, was part of your job um, tracking this Chinese funding of UNDP projects or...? I didn't do so much of the tracking. What we were doing there was working with China um, on its own South-South Corporation, which is um, the sort of the Chinese approach. When I said before that Australia has this OECD DAC traditional yep. donor model, China's version of uh, China's sort of value system is this South-South Corporation partnership model. Uh, and so that's what I was working on when I was there. And part of that was trilateral cooperation, which I mentioned a second ago. Right. And that's where you have China, we, in our case, China, the UNDP, and a third party, the, the partner country party, working together on, a, on an aid project in that country. Right. So we were working, for example, in Cambodia, Malawi, Burundi, but there are other examples as well. That's fascinating. It was, okay. It's great. A recent development that got a lot of attention, including in Australia and international press generally, was some developments at the recent National People's Congress in Beijing. Um, the Chinese government announced the formation of what they called, um, perhaps not the sexiest name, but it's the International Development Cooperation Agency, um, which will be charged with managing its foreign aid programs. Now, can you talk us through the significance of this development? Um, do you expect it will change the way that China conducts its foreign aid? And if so, in, in what ways might we expect some change? Sure. It's a big deal. Um, the creation of this agency is a big deal. And it's something that China's aid practitioners and policy makers have been talking about for years and most of them in my experience have been really um, gunning for this basically really saying that you know this is gonna this is this should happen but there didn't seem to be any particular interest in, in making it happen so um, up until now and then still for the time being most bilateral aid is done by not implemented by but the the aid the ideas designed by the Ministry of Commerce they outranked or were more important than the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So aid tended to be about commercial projects, right. not so much about diplomatic projects. Okay. And that often caused tensions between the two agencies uh, because Ministry of Foreign Affairs got a little bit irritated when an aid project undermined some of the yes, diplomatic work right. they were doing. So there was yeah. a lot of, you know, there was all of these competing mm, actors and competing mm. agendas. And actually there were, I think there's more than 30 different actors doing Chinese aid, you know, provincial level governments, SOEs, all sorts of, of people doing aid. So the idea of this agency to put all of this together and have it under some kind of umbrella is a good idea. Okay. Um, you know, to try and make it um, a little bit more streamlined, to make it more effective. Um, and this is exactly what Xi Jinping has said about it. So in February last year, in 2017, Xi Jinping talked about how it was critical for Chinese aid to be more effective. His um, central reform leading group issued suggestions for reform of foreign aid, another sexy name. Um, <laughs> and and this is a big change because aid went nothing. Aid was nowhere on no one's agenda. And now it is. And 
the language that you they're using to talk about it is about using it for diplomacy as well. So that represents quite a big conceptual shift about what AIDS for and how it's going to work. Right. So you're already seeing some sorts of shift moving away from that kind of de- Department of Commerce language and 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 uh, rationale yep. towards one that's more diplomatically oriented. That's the language that that's been used in the, in the launch. So you know what that means in practice for how Chinese aid is um, implemented and undertaken. It's not really clear. We don't know exactly what the role and structure is, but this new agency will design, approve, monitor and evaluate aid, but not implement. Implementing will still be done by the same people who implement it now, often state enterprises. As a quick aside, the idea of monitoring and evaluation being made into a, uh, an important component, that's, that's important too. I was too. just going to ask, actually. And do you have any sense for how that will be done? So is it going to be done using the same procedures that the Australian government would or, or probably not? China has, in my experience, their M&E monitoring and evaluation of aid projects, like a lot of Chinese policy, has been pretty much about outputs and numbers and so for example when we did uh, a project with them when we talked about doing the M&E of that project they said no problems at all here's our survey uh, how many people turned up to this training did those people all come to the training did they all leave the training alive that's I mean that's slightly joking but not very very much joking um, and that's like terrific well done that was a good project and we were sort of saying okay well here's how the UNDP does evaluation and it's outcome focused and it's about you know what kind of qualitative changes um, might have occurred and the Chinese just were not they weren't anti that mm, but it just mm. wasn't how they kind of operated right. themselves so I think what this if, if, if this idea that M&E is going to be a, an important component I think they're genuinely interested in making their aid um, more effective in that sense mm. of sustainable and outcome focused and I think this we're going to see more of that kind of thing um, in this new agency but there's a lot of challenges to Chinese aid right you know Chinese aid gets a, a lot of Criticism comes comes under a lot of criticism. Bureaucratic fragmentation is one of the problems, and this will hopefully make that a lot uh, cleaner and and more um, systematic. And this is right under the state council as well. So reporting straight to the state council will make a difference right. too. Um, now, lack of transparency, maybe that will improve. But there's an issue that the Chinese um, government feels that the issue of giving too much information to the Chinese population about aid is politically a little bit delicate. Because why aren't they spending the money precisely, domestically? Right? Precisely. Okay. And that's, that <clears throat> is not just empty rhetoric. Um, you know, the, the Chinese government have done research projects on how could we communicate our aid to our domestic population in a way that would galvanise support because we'd like to, yes, but we yeah. don't know how. So they've actually surveyed other kind of developing countries who do South-South cooperation to find out how they do it, um, as well as other developed countries and traditional donors. How do you tell your population that you're spending all your money overseas yeah. and, and, and make that an okay thing, that they are a bit worried about it? I know so, that's a discussion we have in Australia sometimes as well, right, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, the Netherlands, England, all these kind of big, big donor countries have the same issue and deal with it in different ways. So China's interested in learning about that. Um, lack of transparency, yeah, so maybe that might not be resolved. Corruption, that may or may not be resolved as part of this restructure. Corruption tends to happen sort of more at the grassroots on the ground, though, so how that might work, I'm not sure. Another thing that kind of stymies Chinese aid a bit is that it's a little bit out of touch with the international debates. Um, so, for example, a few years ago, there was a big international aid get-together, and one of the topics for discussion was should we should we move our terminology from aid effectiveness to development effectiveness and china didn't want to participate in this discussion not because they were you know bar humbugs but because they 
didn't quite understand what this meant. Right. And so they were really interested in trying to find out a little bit more about what these terminology shifts meant, what was the history of this, what was the politics of this language. Mm. So perhaps with this kind of centralised agency, they might be able to be a bit more um, engaged rather than being in Ministry of Commerce and about commerce and mm. those sorts of things. They might be able to be a bit more kept up to date with these kind of big global trends in aid. Yeah, so it seems a trend to me that it's one that's well and truly worth it from Australia's perspective to be engaged in because you've got these big ha- shifts happening in China and it's the Chinese are, are relatively keen to learn. So maybe we'll get on to that a bit later on. Sure. Okay, next question. One of the, I guess, the arguments against Chinese aid is that it gets used almost as a tool of economic coercion. So it, uh, by giving aid, um, these countries, particularly small ones in, in, in the Pacific, get brought into the sphere of Chinese influence. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, through funding an infrastructure project, um, does that you know, bring a country more into China's sphere of influence or is that a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch? So the idea of using aid as a tool of um, influence or a tool of soft power maybe is not one that is singularly China's clever idea. Uh, the Australian, I remember 2006, I think, aid white paper said right up front, you know, we're using our aid to achieve Australia's national interests. Right. No, first sentence, <laughs> so no secrets there. Um, and, and, and it's certainly the case that China's foreign aid, practitioners within China have been thinking really hard, how can we use it as a tool of soft power? And under Mao Zedong, you know, when we were trying to do global communist revolution, proletariat revolution, they tried to use aid as a tool of soft power. Now, the extent to which that's been successful over time is entirely debatable mm. um, and some would argue that the results have been negative rather mm. than positive in, in terms of it pe- people recipients or partners to be aligned or under China's sphere of influence it's really hard to say right it's just really hard to quantify or to have every, any evidence that that this donation has causally led to you changing yeah, your right. mind to agree with me mm. and at this stage as, as far as I can see there's no evidence either way there's no kind of systematic research that that can demonstrate either okay. side it's easy to look at um, countries like Vanuatu um, for example now Vanuatu is the only Pacific island country who has so far pull, pledged full support for Beijing's stance on the South China Sea and maybe that's because they received um, a generous aid package right. from China now the Vanuatu Prime Minister doesn't says that that's not the case, mm. says that it's actually about their own views about heritage and um, and territorial tradition. And indeed, Vanuatu has a disputed island or two with France that they're trying to uh, to come out on top there. So there may be some other issues yes. there, apart from China being generous. Yes. So all of these kind of possible causal factors into why a country agrees with China or doesn't agree with China, how ca- can you isolate aid? Mm. Now, that being said, the Taiwan issue for example, you can see something clear, much clearer. Okay, so Um, talk to us about that. So up until about 2008, we had this checkbook diplomacy going on in um, Pacific Island countries where Taiwan would give a lovely basket of aid and a country would switch allegiance to Taiwan and then Beijing would come back, basket of aid, switch back again. And it was, it was, da- it was da- dizzy. Transparent at least. <laughs> Absolutely transparent. Um, so you, we could see, for example, uh, in 2002, Nauru switched its allegiance to Beijing after receiving $130 million commitment. But then Taiwan came back with a more generous counteroffer and... Now we switched back again. Um, in 2003, Kiribati switched to Taiwan. Beijing immediately stopped building the sports stadium and took out the medical team. You know, that was, that was pretty clear. Yes. Now that paused. Everybody agreed that that had to stop um, between, at around 2008. 
2016, when Tsai Ing-wen came into power in Taiwan, that seems to have come back again. Oh, okay. um, I don't know if it's quite as extreme as it was in the early 2000s, mm. but there's certainly there's certainly a connection there between aid and allegiance mm, in some mm, cases. Mm. Whether or not that means that these countries are under China's sphere of influence in a more general sense, yeah. voting patterns at the UN, entirely inconclusive. You know, the evidence there suggests actually there aren't any strong patterns between aid and voting patterns. So... It's really, it's easy to say, it's, re- it's easy to assume causality yeah, yeah. because I think that's, that's something that we, we, we tend to believe. Yeah. But evidence for that is, is not 100% clear. Okay. All right. Let me now home this in on with the Australia-China Relations Institute. So everything we do, we always like to bring back to, you know, what does it mean for Australia? Um, so I'd like to get your take on, on that exact issue. Um, earlier this year, we had some um, comments from the International Development Minister who, who said that um, China was building white elephants and roads to nowhere. Um, do you have a sense from your field work and your contacts in the region the extent to which that reflects views on the ground in these Pacific Island countries? Well, you'll be amazed to hear that Pacific Island people and countries are all different. And <laughs> that, that, that in different countries have different views and different parts of society have different yes. views. So elites, for example, are generally quite pleased with um with the kinds of projects that Chinese development aid goes towards and that's usually because it's it's often at a state to state level at that kind of high level and the things that the the partner country wants are the p- things that these individuals often want on the ground it's a completely different story okay um and even within the on the ground communities there are there's a lot of um a lot of difference now i did some um, field work in papua new guinea and in png there are several generations of chinese who have come to png and, and settled the new chinese the more recent um, traders and investors and entrepreneurs are generally generally disliked okay. by the locals but the guys who've been there for a couple of generations have really become part of the community yep. and that's probably true in the uh, solomon islands and various other places as well um, but that being said, there's a there's a strong sense of resentment um, about Chinese presence. There's a strong sense that these Chinese aid projects at the at the ground level don't understand the local communities, don't understand how um, the politics among communities between communities works. Um, one example is the Ramu Nickel Mine in Papua New Guinea. The the company, the Chinese state-owned enterprise, who was um, who made that investment, and I should say it's mostly investment with a small aid component, mm-hmm. but it's hard, that, that gets blurry, it's Chinese aid. Um, they didn't understand these the local landowner communities, and they engaged one local landowner community to help them with the building of this road, but they didn't understand that the other side of the road was another landowner community. Okay. And that, landowner community B, were very vexed by not being brought into it, and they blew up the road, repeatedly. Um, literally blew up the road. Literally blew up the road. Okay, right. Or, or, and, and other kinds of obstacles <laughs> to progress. Right. Um, but, for example, so there's a real sense that the, the Chinese don't understand what's going on, mm. they, don't, um, they don't get the complexities, they don't understand the relationships between people and the state. You mm. know, in China, if an SOE, a state-owned enterprise, goes in and says, now, the government has said you lot along the river are going to have to go, chances are they'll go yes png right. they're not going to mm. roll over quite so easily mm-hmm. so there's there's and, and these chinese companies they're applying their experience from at home 
into these kind of situations. And I remember this Chinese company in particular, they brought on this wonderful, kind, well-meaning person to be their community liaison officer. And she had no experience at all with Papua New Guinea. She mm. spoke reasonably good English, but no, none of the, no top pisin and certainly none of the local languages. And she tried so hard, but you know, dozens and dozens of anthropologists over generations have tried to understand what's going on, um, you know, on the ground in PNG, and this woman had no chance at all. So yeah. there's that, that lack of understanding has really bred a lot of resentment among the local people towards the Chinese in the way that they haven't been, you know, labour standards, environmental standards, understanding the local the local situation, not doing a great job. Mm, okay. Brennan, can I finish off with a, it's a big question, but it's a tough one. Um, is Chinese aid something Australia should be engaged with China on? I mean, is there, I mean, we always talk about this, this hope that Australia can often be a bridge between different parties, and I think that's often overplayed. Is this an example where Australia could actually bring something useful to the table? Maybe we do. I don't know, you tell me, but maybe we do understand realities on the ground better than the Chinese do, and we might actually have something to contribute to here, or is that a bit pie in the sky from on my part? Well, you're right on track with policy. Um, so, well, I was talking about trilateral co- cooperation before, and the Chinese are hesitant to do it with a lot of... Um, with a range of different bilateral agencies, but they are they have been quite positive about doing it with Australia. Uh, so China and Australia um, and various um, pub, uh, Pacific Island countries have got some trilateral projects together. So, for example, there's an anti-malaria project in PNG. I've heard about that one, yes. Um, and that's exactly the idea is to bring the kind of different experiences, different strengths, bring them together and, and create a better project um, based on that. And New Zealand has also something like that in the Cook Islands with a water program. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned. Both sides can learn something. Um, and the Australian government quietly, the Australian aid agency or former aid agency, but mm. DFAT has been quietly doing that behind the scenes for, for quite a few years now, just trying to build that relationship, build that um, trust mm. and, and work on projects together in, in the Pacific that are ultimately the most beneficial they can be to the local populations. Mm, okay, so, so it may not necessarily be that China's presence will become this strategic competition to Australia. There is some possibility that there could actually be some cooperation, useful cooperation as well. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that there's probably space for both. Um, I think that Australia is still quite worried about China's presence yeah. in that growing aid relationship, uh, and, but there is still certainly room for cooperation. Okay, I think that's a good note to finish off on. Meriden, thanks very much for your time. That was some, um, that was some wonderful insights. Thanks, uh, Jane, for having me. Our next episode will feature another researcher whose research I greatly admire. It's Fran Martin, an Associate Professor and Reader in Cultural Studies at the University of Melbourne. She'll join me to discuss the experience of Chinese international students in Australia, especially in the city of Melbourne. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all of our episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you can also find out more information about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.